This is Africa Digest. Your time is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are in Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band if you're in Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Pomela Lezondi. I'm with Jola Netulo, Wissane Matebula and Neto Chimane. Your top stories. The world is no closer to knowing people behind the death of Mozambican president 30 years ago. South African finance minister plans to apply for a review of charges against him. In economics, Sudan's annual inflation rate edges up to 18.32% in September. And in sports, Zamalek desperate to lift the CAF Champions League trophy after a 14-year drought. Jola Netulo has your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has applied for an urgent court interdict against outgoing public protector Tulima Donzela to stop her from releasing preliminary findings into allegations of state capture. Madonzela is due to hold a news conference tomorrow on the day that she steps down. Zuma wants to stop Madonzela from releasing details that the Gupta family allegedly used their access to Zuma to influence government policy and the appointment of ministers and directors of state-owned enterprises. Zuma wants the probe to to be delayed, asking for more time to question witnesses. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says he has referred the National Prosecuting Authority's offer for him to apply for the review of the charges against him to his lawyers. The NPA announced on Tuesday that Gordon will be charged with fraud relating to severance packages and the extension of employment contracts while he was at SARS. However, NPA head Sean Abrahams said yesterday that he was willing to review the charges against Gordon if he was asked. Preparations are underway in Mbuzin in Pumalanga as South Africa honors the late former president of Mozambique, Samora Mashal. Mashal died in October 1986 along with 34 other passengers after his presidential plane crashed at Mbuzini. Abongile Dumago reports. The Mbuzini rural area here in Pumalanga is abuzz with lots of constructions around the Mashal monument. This as the Department of Arts and Culture prepares for Monday next week for the main proceedings. Meanwhile, it's still unclear how President Samora Mashal died 30 years after his passing. Four commissions have been established and thus far have failed to shed some light on the incident. Nigeria's government says it will continue military operations against Boko Haram. This is after the militant group released 21 girls kidnapped in the northern town of Chibok in 2014. Information Minister Lai Mohammed has told reporters the government did not swap any Boko Haram prisoners for the release of the girls who would be brought to the capital Abuja later on Thursday. Earlier, the government released a statement saying the release of the girls is the outcome of negotiations between the administration and Boko Haram brokered by the the International Red Cross and the Swiss government. And finally, Burkina Faso's defense ministry says heavily armed assailants have attacked a military position in the north in the north near the Mali border, killing three soldiers and two civilians. The ministry said the attackers escaped after the early Wednesday attack in Itangom. One soldier is missing and three others are wounded. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack. The West African country has seen a number of assaults since Al-Qaeda-linked extremists attacked Wagadugu in January, killing 30 people. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Your time is 17.04 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's still not known who was behind the crash that led to the death of former President of Mozambique, Samora Machel. President Machel died while on board a plane that crashed in Mbuzini in Bumalanga in South Africa in 1986. He was leader of the Mozambican liberation movement, Frilimo. The incident also claimed the lives of 34 other passengers, including Mozambique's Minister of Transport, Luis Maria de Alcantara Santos and Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs Jose Carlos Lobo Abongile Dumaco compiled this report. We will go all out and fight apartheid in our neighboring countries Malawi, Rhodesia, and even Namibia. Former president of Mozambique, Samora Machel, addressing thousands of citizens at the capital city, Maputo. It was just a few weeks before his death on the 19th of October, 1986, a year that would leave the Southern African nation reeling following the death of its first democratically elected leader. The former statesman had not only been instrumental in shaping democratic Mozambique, but he had also been prominent in the struggle against colonialism on the African continent. He was buried on the 28th of October, 1986. Many Mozambicans were convinced that the crash was as a result of sabotage masterminded by the apartheid regime in South Africa. Thousands gathered at Maputo City Hall to bid farewell to their hero. But very little has happened 30 years after his death in a bid to determine what led to the plane crash at a hillside of the Libombo Mountains in the Mbuzini area of Bumalanga. A South African board of inquiry set up in 1987 under Judge Cecil Mago proclaimed the crash was an accident and blamed the Soviet crew on board. It concluded that the plane had received an incorrect radio link which misdirected it off Maputo. Allegations were also made that the crew consumed alcohol before departing from Lusaka. Since then, three other inquiries have been conducted, including one by the former apartheid government. But what was the verdict? Freedom fighter and former transport minister, Mac Maharaj. I'm aware of the continued concerns about the issue, the desire to reopen inquiries, and speculation by various people. I think there was, in one case, a South African member of one of the South African apartheid government's dirty tricks department who suggested that he had been privy to and involved in that crash. But these matters were looked at by the TRC as well. And again, while the TRC concluded that there were enough grounds for suspicion, and while it recommended an inquiry, it did not find any new evidence. Despite all the inquiries, an endless list of officials, reporters and members and friends of the Michelle family have continued to question what really led to the fatal crash with allegations of sinister motives by elements within the South African military brought to the force. Four commissions of inquiry have thus far failed to conclusively point to the actual cause of the plane crash, something that continues to anger many Mozambicans who have been longing to find closure to this incident. Amabongile Tumako in Bumalanga.
South African Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says he has referred the NPA's offer for him to apply for a review of charges against him to his lawyers. The NPA announced on Tuesday that Gordon would be charged with fraud relating to the early retirement of former of a former colleague at SARS. However, NPA head Sean Abrams said yesterday that he was willing to review the charges if Gordon submitted an application. Legal expert Ulrich Ru explains what a review means in this matter. Well, firstly, I think that uh, all Sean Abrams' credibility has been shot to pieces with this statement of his because he should have considered the legal representations which he's referring to prior to issuing a summons for Minister Gordon to appear in court. So to now to come out and say that he will reconsider it upon representations is completely going back on what he said in his press statement. He's intimating that should Minister Gordon feel that the charges should not have been brought against him and the summons not issued, then he must address that in a legal document to the NPA. So this opportunity should have been granted to him prior to the summons being issued against him. So, as you know, it entails Minister Gordon then having a look at the charges, the contents of the docket, and then furnishing his reasons why he thinks that the matter should not be proceeding. And is this <coughs> unprecedented that a person could be charged and then the next thing there's a statement like this from uh, the NPA to say, well, now you can ask for a review? Completely. As I said, I think his credibility has been shot completely. Why did he make the decision to issue a summons against this person and then one day later he says, well, he'll reconsider it if he receives legal representation? I think his statement is bizarre to say the least. When we look at the charges that um, he's been charged with, are those valid? How would he be charged if he were when to be found guilty? When one looks at the charges, the charge of fraud, now fraud is defined as the intentional misrepresentation to a person or an entity which leads to financial loss being suffered or potential financial loss being suffered. Now, Robin Gordon, when one looks at the regulations as contained in the government employee's pension fund, then he was well within his rights to make a decision for Ivan Pillay to be granted early pension, and it is within his discretion. And uh, as we've seen now, this happens on a regular basis, so why is he being charged for this specific instance now? I don't think there's any merits in the charges that have been brought against him, and I don't see the state obtaining a successful prosecution whatsoever. I think that this matter will fizzle out as most of these matters and it's clear it's purely a political decision that was made in bringing the charges against the minister. And what will happen on November the 2nd? We know that the minister has been asked to appear in court on November the 2nd. Well, it will be in the regional court, so it's a magistrate who will be presiding over the matter and it will clearly be a first appearance and the matter will be placed in the court role and most likely be postponed for further investigation. We don't expect too much on the 2nd. Urugru is a South African legal expert on the line with Tuto Ngobeni. Your time is 17.11 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now delegates from 197 countries in the world are converged in the Rwandan capital Kigali for key discussions geared towards amending the Montreal Protocol on substances and deplete the ozone layer. Environmentalists and scientists believe partnership and commitments from the global leaders would see much achieved. Sylvanas Karemea reports from Kigali. The Montreal Protocol on Substance that Deplete the Ozone Layer is an international treaty 
designed to protect the ozone layer by phasing out the production of numerous substances that are responsible for ozone depletion. The global agreement has put the stratospheric ozone layer on a path to recovery through measures to control production and consumption of ozone depleting substances. Experts in Kigali have warned that failure to amend the protocol could increase risks of skin cancer and global warming. Speaking to the gathering of delegates from 197 countries, President Paul Kagame says responsibility to implement all protocols agreed upon lies in everyone's hands. The responsibility to act lies not only with governments, but also with the scientists and the private sector. Our job is to provide them the proper incentives and support to do their work. This, he says, is likely to pay off if a collective kickoff of strategies is to be attained at the right time. Doing so will significantly reduce harmful emissions up to perhaps another half a degree Celsius while making our economies more competitive and sustainable. Leaders who have converged in Kigali and held technical meetings say are ongoing to see some amendments are achieved. This is Malindani Kiroi from Kenya. This amendment, the voice is coming from Africa, my friend, uh, the Article 5, because we are actually facing, you know, with us, we depend on climate, and you know, poverty is actually coming out because of the agricultural issues. If you don't have food, there is nothing you could talk about. So first of all, you have to talk about this climate. And because this climate has to be preserved, that is why most of the developing countries are being asked to plant trees so that we will not have things like carbon dioxide being a global warmer so that there will be carbon sinks, will provide for the carbon sinks. Marco Gonzalez from Ozone Secretariat says developed countries ought to facilitate the implementation of protocols by providing necessary funding. You see, the Montreal Protocol works in a way that uh, the donor countries, the industrialized countries, will contribute to the a fund, will contribute uh, the necessary funds for the developing countries to take the actions, the necess- necessary actions, to, uh, to reduce the use of HFCs. In other words, the, if there is an agreement here, the industrialized countries agree to put the money together that the developing countries like Rwanda or Costa Rica, which is my hometown, my home country, will need to uh, implement the, the necessary measures to reduce the use of HFCs. So there are countries here that do need the, this assistant, this financial assistant, to implement the, 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 change, the necessary changes, and that those countries are very much in agreement with the amendment. And there may be other industrialized countries who have, who have more resources and that they may live with a late approval of the amendment, but the majority, the vast majority of developing countries do need the financial assistance to implement the amendment, uh, should the amendment be agreed here. In the talks in Kigali are seen as an opportunity to reach a global agreement on an ambitious amendment to the Montreal Protocol to phase down the production and consumption of hydrofluorocarbon or HFCs, which are also upon greenhouse gases 
that greatly contribute to global climate change. Silvano Skalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1717 Central African Time Rise here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Remember to find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. It's Channel Africa Numerical One on Twitter. And you can send us emails at info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to send us text messages, you can SMS plus 27 796 Zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Now, Human Rights Watch says the killing of a prominent opposition leader in Maputo puts ongoing peace talks in Mozambique at risk. Jeremiah Spondetta, a former member of parliament representing the opposition party Renamo, was shot and killed at the weekend. He was also a member of a team preparing a meeting between President Felipe Nussi and the opposition leader Afonso Tlagama to end the current military and political hostilities between Renamo and the government. At least nine other people have died across Mozambique since March 2015 in what seems to be politically motivated killings which the authorities have failed to properly investigate or prosecute. To discuss this, we now have on the line from London Zenaida Machado. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm. Now, Zenaida, what are some of the concerns that you have regarding the killing of a prominent opposition leader, Jeremiah Sapondetta? Okay. Well, our concern is the fact that this is a high-profile figure and is not the first one to be killed in such uh, strange circumstances that we believe are politically motivated assassinations. I mean, Jeremy Spondeka was, apart from being part of the peace talks, being a very well-known former Renamo uh, parliamentarian, he he went to parliament just after the peace deals in 1992. This was also a member of the state council, and he's the second member of the state council to be killed in the past year. So to those two plus other eight political figures, high-profile political figures or academics or state figures who have all been killed. And to date, the police in Mozambique have not been able to tell us who killed these people, in what circumstances and for what reason. Mm. Um, And uh, you're saying that the police have not said why these people were killed. Have you ever um, tried to investigate this matter and talk to the police as Human Rights Watch? 
Well, I mean, this, uh, just, I think it's worth noting that these are political figures. So in, there are other cases of people who have been killed in the past year and the police has not been able to respond why these people were killed and what, what the problem is. So we are particularly concerned about those those 10 uh, cases that we mentioned in our press list because these are political figures and we believe that they've been killed for political reasons. Uh, if, if you look at the circumstances in which each one of them was killed, you will see that they were involved in some uh, very uh, dangerous political uh, conversations or negotiations. They are either Renamu representatives or Selim representatives in areas where we have been getting reports of intense fighting between government forces and Renamu fighters. So uh, we have had cases of people who have died, for example, in Zambezia, or people were killed, for example, in, in, in Tet. One of the most most dramatic case, for example, the one in Tet in Mortis was a member of the local assembly. He had just finished giving a speech. He was walking toward his house and he was shot dead in the middle of the street. And maybe if we can just if we can just take a step back a little bit, um, what's going on in Mozambique? Um, what's making you think that these are politically motivated? Okay, uh, just to give you a brief background, um, in the past four years or so. Um, the Mozambique, uh, Mozambican authorities have been involved in sporadic clashes with the opposition uh, Renamo. It has intensified since October 2014 when Frelim won the elections, but Renamo claims it won um, elections in six provinces. And since then, Renamo has been trying by force, or at least they pledged to do so, um, to, to take uh, to, to have control of those provinces by force. And when they made that announcement, the government forced them announced that they would chase down Renamo and disarm them by force because they were no longer just a security force to protect the Renamo leader, Fons Chakama. They were now a militia. And in, in the Mozambican territory, they were not, they, only one arm should operate, which is the official arm. So during that process, if you, if, you, if you, for those who have been watching it carefully, you would have seen that nobody has been arrested to date. You often hear about uh, the police raiding offices of the opposition or the, the, the army raiding camps of Renamu, but no uh, reports of anyone being arrested. But you often get reports of bodies being found in the bush. Or, or, or political figures uh, being killed. So we believe that what is going on right now in Mozambique, it's uh, some sort of uh, of a conflict, uh, and 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 the way they, the, the 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 security forces are are winning this fight or are trying to win this fight is by eliminating the most important figures of the Renamu part, so that uh, Renamu loses bases and can no longer stand in a fight. On the other hand, you then find Renamu trying to revenge or trying to respond to the government, and they will then pursue Renamu uh, government officials and also kill them. Mm. Um, and uh, do you not think that perhaps um, the fact that both parties have agreed to at least um, sit down and have a facilitated uh, a peace talk maybe would be a step forward? It is a step forward, but we are still concerned that since the talks began in July, they have not agreed the ceasefire. So the talks are going on. At the same time, in the bush, they are still fighting. They, when they meet each other, I mean, it's not an ongoing fighting, but when the Renamo forces meet the army officials or the army soldiers, 
they exchange fire and eventually some people are killed. We have also had reports of people fleeing their areas. Right now in Mozambique, there are two IDP camps in Manika province for people who are fleeing, fighting in, the, in dangerous areas of Sofala or Manika province. So uh, there is something going on. And unfortunately, those leaders have not been able to uh, agree on a ceasefire. They have, yes, agreed that they need to discuss and find a solution uh, through dialogue, which is very, um, it's very good to hear. And I'm also very pleased to, to know that the Renamu leaders also say that the fact that Jeremias Pondega was killed will not in any way uh, make them stop uh, the talks. So in his words, the talks will continue until they reach an agreement. Mm. So you don't think that Pondega's murder will be a setback at all? Uh, we would hope it won't. All right. And um, how far are we in the talks at the moment? Because you are saying that as much as the talks are going on, there's still fighting that's taking place in the bush. Okay. Uh, the, the last thing we knew is that the talks were supposed to resume on uh, Monday. Uh, they are now on hold following the killing of Pondega. So we believe that he's going to resume now next Monday. And what, what had happened previously um, in those talks? They have not yet been able to reach any agreement that has been signed. It's been talks and talks. We haven't heard of any substantive, <coughs> sorry, substantial uh, agreement signed at least. And the, the, the last time they seemed to have agreed on something, which was the fact that there was a need to review the constitution and that uh, the government could consider pointing. Uh, the Namu people as governors of some provinces. Uh, that was decided in the morning, late in the afternoon, the representatives of the president, in this case representatives of the ruling party, Selimo, gave a press conference saying that uh, journalists had misunderstood the message and that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, and uh, with the fighting going on uh, still, and we are also seeing refugees crossing over to, to neighboring countries as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, do you think that um, uh, this is the right platform or the right environment for the talks to be taking place while fighting is still happening um, in the northern parts of the country? Of course it's not. And it's not just me who thinks that. Even the, 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 the mediators who are very high-profile international figures, um, they, they, they think the same, that there is a need for, 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 for a ceasefire. Unfortunately, none of the sides is flexible. Um, the, the, Renamu, the Renamu precondition to stop fighting is that the government must withdraw their forces from places where they believe they are, they are, they are, they are, they are limiting the access or the movement of Renamu leader. Uh, the government on its hand says they are not going to withdraw the, fo- the government force because the, arm- the army's duty is to protect the Mozambican territory and they will be where they are needed. Mm. Um, right now, as Human Rights Watch, what is it? What is your last plea or, or the way forward that you think they should take? Our plea, and we have been making this plea since this conflict began, it is that when they engage, we don't want to interfere on the political matters. Uh, what we want is for them to avoid hitting civilians, to avoid destroy property of civilians, to avoid um, uh, raiding uh, uh, hospitals and other health facilities, to, to avoid destroying the, the source of maintenance of civilians. This is a conflict between the NAMO forces and the armies, and that's the way it should continue. It should not 
in any case affect the Mozambican people. Mozambican people have gone through a lot over the years. They deserve to live in peace, and they deserve to live in security, and they deserve to, 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 to earn a living um, in, in an environment that, is, uh, 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 that allows them to do so. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is Zenaida Machado. She is with Human Rights Watch. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates, and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. So for your headlines now, yes, Chola Natulo. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has applied for an urgent court interdict against outgoing public protector Tulima Donzala to stop her from releasing preliminary findings into allegations of state capture. Burkina Faso's defense ministry says heavily armed assailants have attacked a military position in the north and near the Mali border, killing three soldiers and two civilians. And finally, the United Nations General Assembly has appointed former Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Guterres as the ninth Secretary General of the World Body. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholari Tulo. Thank you very much, Jolane, for that update. Your time is 17.31 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomelele Zondi. Now, tomorrow, human rights activists will hold a memorial service for Fezegile Ntugela Kuzwayo, also known as Kwezi. The memorial service will take place in Johannesburg. The woman who had accused South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, of rape in 2005, died last Saturday. Zuma is charged with rape after investigations into claims that he had raped the 31-year-old woman and a family friend. Kwezi, as she was publicly known for 10 years, was a long-standing AIDS activist since the dark days of the country's HIV-AIDS denialism. Details of the funeral arrangements are still unknown at this stage. For more on this, we are joined on the line by human rights activist Yvette Raphael. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Yvette. Uh, good evening. Um, Yvette, if you can perhaps start by reminding us who Fezegile Kuzwayo was. I, I think what we as human rights activists and as activists would like South Africans and the world to know is that Fezegile was a human rights activist. She was a 
fight against the, you know, the denialist regime of Thabo Mbeki, and most importantly, she was very passionate about issues regarding uh, gender-based violence. So for us as activists, that's important that we bring back the narrative and take away the narrative that only talks about the survivor, the rape survivor. However, we want everyone to remember Fezeka as a loving person, somebody who wanted to stand up and who stood up for the rights of those marginalized by gender-based violence and at the time HIV and AIDS and the lack of treatment in South Africa. How did that narrative of Fezahile being an, an AIDS activist um, in the time of denialism uh, go away? Uh, it, it clearly went away when she had to go into hiding after the rape trial and she had to go into different spaces and countries and hide from, from South Africans uh, as a whole. So for us it's important as activists and a lot of people supported her during this time. So we would like to have that narrative told and remember her for the loving person that she was. Mm. Um, and uh, how much do we know about her um, post that uh, rape uh, trial as well? What happened to her? Uh, that is details would be told by those very close to her. And I think it's, it's a time and space where we as South Africans would have to respect that. However, we would not want Terika's voice and her to be forgotten and written out of the history books. That is why we as activists have decided to come together and be vigilant about it and remind South Africans what this young woman stood for and what she, what she, why she fought so hard for some of the things that made her go into hiding. We don't want the, the, the narrative around only being the rape survivor and all of the things that are, that are in the media. We want to remember a friend and a comrade who was a fighter. All right. And tell us now about the memorial service tomorrow. The memorial service will take place at the Section 27 boardroom tomorrow, and it will be attended by those close to her and friends and also the public. We want, because there was an outcry from the public, that they wanted to have a space where they can remember her and be reminded of who she was because she was in hiding for such a long time. So this is a time where we would celebrate, activists always celebrate in song, where we would celebrate the life of a fighter, a young woman who fought so hard for human rights, who fought so hard for so many South Africans. We have more than three million South Africans on treatment today. And how because of her going into hiding, how this was forgotten, that she was in the forefront of this fight. It's, it's something that we want to remind South Africans, that we did not get treatment in South Africa. Some people had to fight for it. And Sezeka, as a woman, was in the forefront for this fight. How did you get into activism? Myself. Um, um, myself. I'm talking about Fezegila herself. How did she get into AIDS activism? Obviously, clearly, because at the time she was HIV positive and had disclosed and was openly looking with HIV, she was a fearless fighter. She never hid the fact that she was HIV positive. Mm. Um, maybe if you can, away from activism, tell us about who she actually was, the person that was Fezegile, because South Africa, um, or most South Africans, got to know of her um, during that rape trial um, when... Uh, 
uh, President um, Jacob Zuma was uh, had been accused of uh, of uh, raping Fezegile. But who was she outside that rape trial, outside AIDS activism? And the person that was Fezegile, because she obviously was a rounded person, a whole person. Yes, I think most importantly that we need to always remember that she was a woman and she was somebody's daughter. She was somebody's aunt. She was somebody who was loved by her community. And when I talk about the community, because as an activist, that's how I got to know Feza guys. As an activist, that's, that's the life. We live lives outside. You know, when you an activist, your life, your family sometimes do not understand the life we live. And I think that's the life we want to remember, a, a life of a fighter, a loving person, somebody who cared for her community. Mm. And now, do we know who's going to be speaking tomorrow at the memorial service? Uh, we're going to do it like we said on the invitation. We're going to do it very old style. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot of people would know it's around 15 years since that Fezaka went underground. So for us, it's that kind of activism. We do not have an agenda. We do not have special people speaking. Everyone is going to be able to have an opportunity to talk how she affected their lives because she did affect the lives of many people. She was very passionate about issues around gender-based violence. It affected her so much that she would stand up sometimes and talk about these things that affect uh, gender-based violence, especially gender-based violence with close people close to us and with young people. So that's the kind of memorial service we're going to have. A lot of people have confirmed that they will be attending the memorial service, but the memorial service is not around celebrities. The memorial service is around and the life of her as an AIDS activist and as somebody who fought for the rights of people that living in South Africa. Yvette Raphael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yvette Raphael there is a human rights activist in South Africa. Now, a new report by World Health Organization, or WHO, has documented how countries need to move much faster to prevent, detect, and treat TB if they are to meet global targets. Launched today, the World Health Organization 2016 Global TB Report features important new estimates on the size of the global TB epidemic, among other things. To discuss this, we're joined on the line by Dr. Mario Ravi. Leone, who's the director of the Global TB program at the World Health Organization. Hello, and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, now, Mario, what kind of a picture does this report paint? Uh, this report focuses essentially on uh, uh, three, I would say, three mega messages. One is that the burden of tuberculosis is much higher than we previously estimated, thanks to the fact that we have new information coming mostly from India that allowed us to sort of revisit the previous estimate. The second big message is that the multidrug-resistant tuberculosis epidemic is worse uh, uh, year after year in terms of response. And uh, the final message is that we need more money. There are uh, financial gaps uh, and, I would say, political commitment gaps. All right. And does the report make mention of any progress and what progress has been made? There are also uh, signs of progress, of course. Uh, For instance, if you just state the number of lives saved, in the past one year there are three uh, and more million lives that have been saved compared to a situation where TB control did not function like it is functioning. 
So that that is I call that I call actually uh, progress. There is still a decline in the incidence and in the mortality caused by tuberculosis globally. That is also progress. However, I think the concern now is not so much to celebrate this progress, which is slow in any case, but to really see what countries are capable of doing and want to do with their political commitment, their financing, especially for the BRICS, you know, domestic financing, to, uh, to, to, to face the challenge of tuberculosis and to face particularly the challenge of the uh, new ambitious targets that have been set in the context of the World Health Assembly as well as in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm, and are countries um, willing to create newer programs and, and have more funding? I believe that South Africa is uh, actually one of the countries that has shown more than many others the uh, willingness to do things right. And uh, I uh, always uh, praise the uh, Minister Mozzolini for what he has done in terms of, for instance, uh, expanding the access to the modern molecular rapid diagnostics that uh, uh, South Africa has put in place basically everywhere. Uh, not only, but there is also the willingness needed to address MDRTB in a stronger way by including in the regimens uh, the recommendations, so the latest recommendations of WHO for shorter regimens of nine months and for the use in uh, cases that deserve uh, to be treated that way of new drugs, the two new drugs that we have available. So I see South Africa as an innovative country. Of course, the challenge is huge. South Africa remains one of the countries with the highest rate per capita in the world, but the, um, the, the political willingness there is not lacking. Um, if the willingness is not lacking in, in South Africa and perhaps other countries with high TB rates, um, why then do rates still remain high? Uh, tuberculosis is not like, say, Ebola or uh, epidemics that come and go within a matter of six months, one year. Tuberculosis is a slow disease, is a disease that has affected South Africa and any country of the world for millennia. I'm not even talking centuries here, but millennia. TB has been affecting humans. And, of course, when you start a certain movement to try to reduce incidence and mortality, you have to give it a certain you know, number of years to see the effects of that. You can't change the epidemiology of tuberculosis within a matter of six months or one year. So you have to give it time. What will be important in the future, in the next several years, is to maintain the same level of commitment and to ensure that any innovation is put in place and accessible to everyone who needs it. And this is where, you know, the hope is for every country, not just South Africa. Um, now, when you do your report, uh, what methodology do you use before you compile it? We uh, request uh, information every year uh, through uh, forms that uh, have been developed and perfected over the past 20, 21 years, to be, to be precise. Uh, we request this information that includes all the indicators that are agreed upon internationally, uh, to every country. So in essence, we are asking them how many cases were reported. We are asking them how many deaths were reported or uh, uh, um, are present in the vital registration. We are asking them how many patients have been treated and what is the QR rate of these patients. We also do then an auditing, in a way, of this uh, data because sometimes, uh, you know, countries may report data that are either misinterpretation of what needs to be reported and sometimes you know, there have been episodes in the past of countries that were reporting data that were found not to be precise. 
So situations like this. And so we do a vetting in uh, uh, the country office of WHO that is always in uh, all the major countries. Um, we do that at the regional uh, level. So we have regional experts in tuberculosis that do that, and eventually in Geneva. If we find something that is not consistent with the, uh, let's say, the known situation of tuberculosis in any country, then we go back and we ask for that. Sometimes we do, uh, and, we for, and we promote uh, uh, and facilitate the reviews of the program in a country. We send a team. It's made. Sometimes there are teams of 150 people reviewing, like in the case of India, for instance, recently, reviewing the situation of, uh, of a, spe a specific country. So what we do during this um, kind of, um, of reviews, we send people down uh, randomly at, say, the clinical level to see what's going on, and then at the district level to see what, being, what is being recorded and what is then reported to WHO. So by doing these kind of operations, we try to ensure that all the data we receive are of, are of quality. And we can actually pick it up fairly easily in most occasions because, as I say, TB does yes. not change dramatically a year after another. All right, and obviously there are recommendations mm -hmm. that you make, and this year what recommendations are you making? Well, we are saying that we have to, we have to face these issues that I was mentioning, for instance, being the most important ones. Uh, by doing uh, uh, different things. So number one, I think uh, uh, what is important here is to ensure that uh, the uh, surveillance system works in the, possibly in the best uh, in the best way. And uh, uh, not only, but there is an issue there that is uh, an important one of missing cases. So when we come up with an estimate, we say there is a million cases, for instance, and then we, we find that only, I don't know what, 750,000 are reported. And so we then raise the, raise the hand and say this is not... Uh, what we would have expected, and that requires that the missed cases are then uh, traced and, uh, uh, and the, uh, say, diagnostic systems are put in place to allow all of this to happen, uh, as right. an example. Um, and uh, so that is one point. The other one is that of facing MDRTB the way it should, and that requires innovation. It requires, to, you know, basically the implementation of what South African has been, has been doing, i.e. the rapid molecular test everywhere, not only, but uh, the availability then of regimens that work. To achieve all of this, uh, uh, then I, I put it on the political level and political ground to say yes. that requires willingness, it requires resources. And in the case of the BRICS, like South Africa, it requires both, and in fact principally domestic resources to be mobilized, on top of which then the international community can help with additional funding that could help in, uh, uh, say, seed money, call it this way, that could help in specific uh, issues and particularly in technical assistance. So providing yeah. technical assistance that allow the country then to, to move uh, uh, more, uh, more quickly. So All these right. are the kind of things. And uh, just to say one last point on this. Uh, All right, if, uh, if you can be brief on that, we've run out of time. Yeah. All right. So, you so can, yeah, no, I yeah. wanted to say that, 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 that what is necessary at this point in the TB epidemic is to raise it at the highest political level. Ministers of Health by themselves cannot solve the entire issue, and they require the full support of Ministers of Finance, other ministries that are involved with development, and uh, eventually heads of state that promote the right cause. For that, we are calling for, uh, we are calling, we WHO cannot call, but yes. we are asking member states to please raise the issue at the UN General Assembly. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Bye. That's Dr. Mario Rivaglioni, who's the director of the Global TB program as the World Health Organization. Your economic news now with Wissana Matabula.
Good evening in your economics news this hour. Nigerian lawmakers have invited South Africa's MTN, Nigeria's trade minister, and four lenders to appear at an investigation hearing on Thursday over the alleged illegal transfer of 14 billion US dollars out of the country. The four lenders invited to appear before a Senate committee on banking, insurance, and other financial institutions are Stan Big, Standard Chartered Bank, Citibank, and Diamond Bank. MTN and Nigeria's Trade Minister Okechuku Elenema have denied any wrongdoing. Dubai-based private equity investor Abraj has acquired a minority stake in Nigeria-based Indorama Fertilizers, which is the largest area fertilizer maker in sub-Saharan Africa, for an undisclosed amount. The stake was purchased from Indorama Holdings Netherlands, a wholly-owned subsidiary of Indorama Corporation, a petrochemical group. Indorama produces 1.4 metric tons of fertilizer annually at a facility in the Nigerian oil hub of Port Harcourt. Besides Nigeria, Arbraj says the plant will uh, serve uh, neighboring West African countries and markets in North America, Southern America and Europe. In Sudan, inflation rate has edged up to 18.32% in September from 18.15% in August as the price of foodstuffs and services climbed. Prices have soared in Sudan since South Sudan seceded in 2011, taking with it three-quarters of the country's oil output, which is the main source of a foreign currency used to support the Sudanese pound and pay for food and other imports. The cost of a U.S. dollar on the parallel market had eased to 15.5 Sudanese pounds on Thursday compared with 16 pounds per dollar in September. And as protests around the, the fees must fall campaign intensifies in South Africa, economists have warned that uh, if the 2016 academic year is not saved, the damage to higher education will be difficult to reverse. The situation is likely to add to the already high unemployment rate as many students could leave the institutions of higher learning without qualifications. Head of NetBank Strategic Research, Mohamed Nala. In the event that this academic year is lost and the student needs to repeat that year, that is a cost of yet another year's worth of funds. If we lose these students, we effectively lose a full year worth of doctors, nurses, accountants. Pick your vocation. Now, if you have a look at how any of these institutions plan, they plan for a certain intake from every academic year to grease the wheels to keep the system going. And likewise, the universities plan on those graduates moving on. So effectively, you're losing a full year worth of productive capacity capacity for hundreds of thousands of people that could have become economically active participants in the economy. And Kenyan Airways has urged pilots to call off a strike planned for next week. The carrier, 27% owned by Air France KLM, took the unprecedented step of publishing parts of its earnings early in response to the strike called by Pilots Union Kalpa. The union says it has lost confidence in the airliner's CEO, Mbuvin Gunze, and chairperson of the board, Dennis Awurute. The Kenyan government has a 29% stake in the airline. Financial indicators, the dollar now at 14.31, South African rents at 10.64, Botswana Pula, and 9.90 against the Zambian Kwacha, also at 0.81 to the British pound and 0.90 against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,260. Platinum is at $947 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil, $51.45 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now.
chairman has a sports news. Good evening, sport fans. With your latest sport news at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. It's been 14 years since Zamalek last lifted the Champions League trophy. They beat Raja Casablanca of Morocco 2-1 in the 2002 final. Head of Zamalek delegation to South Africa, Ahmed Mortada, the son of the club's president, Mortada Mansour, says the club is desperate to lift this title again. Uh, Egypt and uh, South Africa have a good relation from the old time. And I think uh, uh, it will be good play between Zamalek and Sundowns. But I hope Zamalek to win. Uh, we are the, I am member board of Zamalek, and my my father is the president of Zamalek. Yeah, and um, we are new mem- uh, new board. Yeah, from uh, only two years, we success to win uh, champions in Egypt and uh, four cups of Egypt. Uh, but the, uh, the African champions is a dream for me, yeah. Because when I am very young, I I win title before. Uh, but now I'm uh, I'm uh, one of uh, of a board. It will be good for me to have uh, the champion. Zamalek arrived in South Africa on Wednesday ahead of Saturday's CAF Champions League final first leg built for the Lucas Masterpieces Moripa Stadium in Atrocheville, just outside Pretoria. In athletics news, Jessica Ennis Hills, the 2012 Olympic Pathlon champion and Golden Girl of British Athletics, has announced her retirement from the sport. The decision means the 30-year-old will not be defending her world title at the next year's athletics championships in London's Olympic Stadium. The 30-year-old won silver at the Rio de Janeiro Olympics last August. Victory would have made her the first British female track and field athlete to win consecutive Olympic titles. Ennis Hills' 2012 Super Saturday gold medal was one of the emotional highlights of her home London games and in the years since then she has got married, had a son and battled with injury. She had made it clear already that Rio would be her last Olympics but had said it would be a hard decision to miss London. Australia's Nick Kaigios has refused to apologize to the tennis fans following his found language and unsporting behavior during his match against Ms. Chavez Verev at Shanghai Masters on Wednesday. Kaigios argued with a fan and their chair umpire was booed off court after he went down to a bizarre straight says defeat to Zverev. He was slapped with a code violation for an audible obscenity and was warned to play properly during an eventful 6-3-6-1 defeat at the hands of Mr. Zverev. The controversial Australian took his latest antics to another level during the post-match press conference. South Africa's one-day international captain Faf Duplessis has praised his team for consistent high performance during the entire five-match ODI series against Australia. This after the Proteas secure a historic five-match whitewash over Australia on Wednesday night in Cape Town. The Proteas cruised to a 31-run victory. South Africa had posted 327 for 80 in their 50 overs after winning the toss and election to bat first thanks to Rilly Rousseau, 122, and JP Dumini, 73 before, but David Warner stunning 173 as Australia were pulled out for 296 in the penultimate over to hand South Africa a 5-0 series whitewash. Proteas captain Faf Duplessis took his hat off for his players. Once again tonight, we just hey, we had all the answers. Um, so I think there's a lot of credit has to go to as a team. Uh, I'm so proud of the guys and the performances. 
I think right through this series you could see that at different times, different guys stood up. Once again today we were in a different position, a little spot of bottom, 30 for 3. Riley and JP and Dave playing a fantastic knock. So, And then with the ball we were really good on a wicket that wasn't much assistance, especially Imi Bowler, fantastic spell. Andile was really good tonight. And then at the end, Carl bowled really well. So just this whole series... Um, Whatever Australia threw at us, we would just add more answers. So, really proud of the way the guys played. Australia captain Steve Smith says they were simply outplayed by the Proteas in the all matches despite their improved performance in the last match. Better performance from Davey. I thought he was outstanding to, to score 170 out of the 300 we scored. Um, was phenomenal. The, other, the rest of us just didn't stand up, but hats off, it was a, it was a serious innings from Davey. And some of the younger bowlers have learned some lessons. Joe Meany was a little bit better today. Yeah, I thought he hit good areas early on, um, got a little bit out of the wickets with the same up. So, yeah, look, um, this has been a tough series. We've been outplayed in, in all of the games by the Proteas. Um, they've played some great cricket and, and thoroughly deserve to win this, this series 5-0. Thank you for tuning in to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap about top stories. The world no longer, no closer to knowing people behind the death of Mozambican president 30 years ago. South African finance minister plans to apply for a review of charges against him. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumele Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. Info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS on plus 27796957930 on Twitter. It's Channel Africa One. Here's Judith Sepuma and Rungumagengozi Gwazban. Kuna mkutimvandi kuchinyanja service ya chanyo Afrika.